So we are in our second and final part of this short series called One Another. And Ben read it for us earlier, but I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 8. It says, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So last week we used this verse as our jumping off point for this one another series. Um, we talked about there are three different, com- three different commands and instructions that Peter is giving here to love each other deeply, to offer hospitality to one another, and to use our gifts on, for the benefit of each other. And we really focused in on more or less the first and the third of those, and we touched on hospitality, and I promised to return to it. So th- that's what we're going to do this morning. Last week we learned a new verb. We called it one anothering you recall. We talked about one anothering. This is just the act of being together, being a community, caring for each other, um, loving each other, being around one another. And really that's the focus for this morning as we transition. We talk about what it means to one another with each other, to be practicing this idea of one anothering. Um, What do we need to do in order to have that happen? As we think about that, as you have that question in your mind, what do we need to do in order to be able to practice one another? And what, what is the prerequisite, in other words? I want to read a few of the instructions we talked about last week. There are 47 instructions involving one another in the New Testament, right? Because this word for one another appears 100 times. And uh, there are 47 of those are instructions for Christ followers. So here's a few. I, I got five examples for you this morning. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 says, carry each other's burdens. Carry each other's burdens and that way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And Josh and Jackie were just talking about some burdens they had and he referenced the life group, right? That's what life group is all about. It's about carrying each other's burdens, about walking through life with each other. Colossians 3.13, because when we come together and we do life together in these ways, Sometimes it gets a little bit messy. So Paul says in Colossians 3, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's a challenging call. It's a challenging call. Romans chapter 12, a couple of verses from that chapter, 10 and 16. It says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves and live in harmony with one another. James chapter 5 Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Ephesians 4, 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And then lastly, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. That last one is a call to be with each other. So what does this look like in action? You know, what does it look like to to practice one anothering in action? What do we have to do in order to even be in the position to practice one anothering together? We have an example in the New Testament from the early church. Now, just a quick caveat on this. Not everything that the early church did was to be followed, right? Not everything about what the early church practiced was, was an example for us 
to mimic and imitate and to follow. But some things were, right? Some things are clearly things that we're supposed to follow. In in Acts chapter 6, for example, they had their first issue, and it involved some prejudice. Like there were people that were being ignored because of their background, and they had to solve this issue where where they they, they put people in charge of really making sure that there was fairness and equality and distribution of some of the things for people who are in need, particularly the widows. And so that, that was not something we were, were supposed to mimic in terms of the, the problem that was created. They weren't perfect, right? The early church was not perfect. It, they had their issues just like we do. They were all human beings. They were people. And uh, they had their struggles and they had their problems. But at the same time, they had some good stuff going on. They had figured out and they were learning what it meant to be the church. And they were be, living obediently to Jesus in that regard. And so in Acts chapter 2, this is probably a verse, if you've been around the church for a while, that may be familiar to you because it's a great example of what it looks like to live in this type of community that Jesus talked about as well in his ministry. Here's what it says in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. It says, they, the Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So we see it right there. One of the, the values of that early church was fellowship. Right? Fellowship is simply coming together and connecting around our common faith. Verse 43, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate Uh, They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So this was a very active time in the life of a brand new church. And as they are connecting, as they're meeting together in the temple courts, and then it says also in their homes, breaking bread together, God is using all of that, that, what's going on, to continue to build up his church. And it says people were coming to know Jesus daily in that context. Now, you might be questioning, what does this look like today? Like, what does this kind of example look like today? And I, got, I received a text message in the last couple of weeks. I can't remember exactly when, but it was within the last week, week and a half, two weeks at the most. And um, it, it, to me, showed, demonstrated exactly what this is supposed to look like. And there was a picture in the text message, and here was the picture. I think I've got it. Yeah, there we go. This is, this is the life group. This is actually a group that formed um, from our upper room group. In this group, a fun fact, in order to qualify for this group, you have to be um, someone named Gary. Um, I, I'm kidding, but half of the males you see, in the, more than half, are named Gary in that group. It just, no, exactly half in the picture. Um, so, yeah, ha- there's three Garys in that group. It's kind of weird. But, um, you know, it's cool. We, we like it, the Gary group. And... Um, this is them gathered on, a, on another night just, just to share in fellowship with each other, just to break bread together and have a meal. And I've heard from several of the members of the Gary group that like, they are just loving life in this life group. And it's, like I said, a brand new group that has formed. And, um, and man, it's just been transformational already in the first few months of meeting together. I didn't give them any warning that this picture was going up, but if you send it to me, it could get shown publicly. So let that be a warning to you all. Um, but that group, you know, they're just connecting. They're just doing life. They're just meeting. They're just being together. And that's what stands out to me. That's one of the things that stands out from that Acts chapter 2 passage is as I read it, the word together appears three times. And the first time, all it simply says is they were together. They were together. 
man, they were together. Like there's, as simple as that is, there's something profound about it. And for us, particularly in our culture, where together oftentimes means, you know, something completely different on the other side of a screen or, or via email or phone call or whatever it might be. And we do the best that we can in certain situations, right? No doubt. But at the same time, at the same time, there's a calling for us as the church to simply be together. Just be together. We need to be together. Let it be described about us that we were together, that we were together. Because really the prerequisite for being able to practice one anothering is to simply be with each other, is to get to know one another, to do life with one another, to, to just to be together. And it's really amazing how much these early Christians seem to just be together. And it's no wonder that so many one another commands and, and, and instructions had to be given to the early church because as we know, when we spend more time with other people, life can get a little bit messy, right? And so when, when Paul's saying, hey, bear with each other, forgive each other, you know, like that's going to happen the more times. And so sometimes we're like, ah, it's not worth the trouble, you know. The more time I spend with people, the issues come up. But I'm here to tell you, it is worth the trouble. Messy life is a good life, right? And sometimes that's what happens. But at the same time, it's, it's what we were designed for. We're going to have those issues, but it's what we were designed for, to live in community. And so there's all these one another commands. They're learning what it means like to be a people together, a unified people. And even as Paul preaches, especially the church in Ephesus, I mean, he's emphasizing, look, look, there's people from different backgrounds. There's people uh, who are Jewish and Gentile. And God, Jesus came that he would bring these two groups into one to be his people. God's calling us to be a unified people amidst differences. In, in the midst of having different backgrounds and everything else. So you're coming from different places in the country or even the world, coming together and creating one people under Christ. So one anothering requires what we'll call togetherness, which is actually a word. One anothering we kind of made up, but togetherness is a word. We need to be a church of togetherness in order to even begin practicing this verb, this new verb of one anothering. A lot of fulfillment of what, what Jesus envisioned for his church is just old-fashioned togetherness and hospitality, just getting a meal together. That's what it really comes down to. The togetherness in the church was almost assumed. And here's why. Because in that day, going to Jesus and going to the people of Jesus was in a lot of ways to leave behind some other stuff, right? These new believers in Jerusalem, they were bringing with them, their, they were still Jewish people, right? They were still Jewish people. They weren't leaving all of their identity behind because they were worshiping the same God. But they were also leaving behind a lot of the traditions. They were leaving behind a lot of the relationships that they had because other people were not being tolerant of what was going on in the church. They were not accepting what they were seeing. And they, they saw that this was a breakaway from what they had envisioned for God's people as the Jewish people. And so when they left to go to Jesus, they, they were leaving. They, there was a cost, and they knew very clearly what that cost was. And a lot of times it came in the form of relational cost, which really is the greatest cost that we can bear as Christ followers. And that happens. It happens in parts of the world. It happens sometimes here. But we don't have to always pay the same cost as everyone else. So the togetherness isn't always as assumed as much today as it was then. Because we, we all are, are built to be with other people. And so in, in that day, leaving, you were, you were losing a lot of your community. And so when you came to Jesus, you, be, you had to take on the community of the believers 
along with you in order to, to be God's people. When Jesus said, I will build my church, he didn't mean walls, right? He didn't mean a structure. And I love that about being a portable church. It's like, we, we, this place is amazing. I hope we meet here for a long, long time. It's great, but we are much more aware because we don't own it. It's not ours that this is not the church. Like, this is the, church, this is the place that the church comes to meet, right? And it's a great facility for that. But it's a facility. The church is right here, right? The church is right here. And the church comes together, and then the church goes out and it scatters. And when it scatters, it can meet in smaller groups. It can, it can do good in the community. It can reach its neighbors, right? We can do all sorts of things when we are scattered, and then we come together and we worship God together when we are gathered. We do both. But the, the church is the people. Now, we were talking about this very idea this past weekend. We had our join class, which is the, the membership class here at Oak Point Canton. And over dinner on Friday, we were talking about some of the misconceptions that we just tend to have about church. Like, you know, a lot of times we think about church like it's sort of like a business or something, like we're a service provider or like it's a place. You know, that's the most common one. And we were just talking about that. It's not a place. It's people. Right? We, we think about church as, as being like a time, like an hour on, on Sunday mornings. There are all these misconceptions that we have about church. And when we were talking about that, Aubrey was like, yeah, I just watched this Marvel movie. And I was like, nerd. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I like Marvel movies too. Uh, but it's the Thor, um, which, what Thor movie was it? Ragnarok, that one. Yeah, that one. All right, and I had to look this up to make sure she wasn't pulling my leg. But Odin... Is, uh, is Thor's father. And he appears to Thor when he's like just dejected, like he thinks that the battle is now lost. And the battle is for this city called Asgard, which is really like home for Thor. And, and in the midst of this discussion where he's like, there's nothing I can do, my hammer's destroyed, like I can't take back Asgard. And Odin goes, Asgard's not a place. It's not a place. It's a people. It's where the people are. That's, that's, that's Asgard. And it's not one particular location. Really, it's made up of the people. And in the same way, that's God's church, right? It's the people. It's not the location. We could meet anywhere, and we would still be God's church. And there's something attractive about this. Jesus predicted this when he said, this is how all people will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another, that there's a unity, that there's a connection, and that there's a togetherness. And we see that beginning to ring true right there in the passage we read from Acts chapter 2. In verse 47, it said, the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. And that came right on the heels of it talking about how much the church was together. There's something attractive about a genuine community that draws in people, even with curiosity, to see what, what connects all these people from different backgrounds, from different places, what brings all these people together and causes them to be so unified and so selfless as they meet with one another. There's something attractive about this togetherness. When we meet, when we are devoted to each other, when we follow these one another in commands, that togetherness is attractive to the world. We're going to look at one more passage in Mark chapter 10. I'm just going to give you a quick breeze on the context. Now, later this summer, I'm just going to give you just a little insight here. We're going to come back to this passage. So I'm not going to hit everything about this passage. I'm going to leave some meat on the bone so we can come back to have another bite later in the summer. But this is a great passage where this rich young ruler approaches Jesus, curious about following him, and he says, look, I've, I've obeyed all these commands. Like, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus pinpoints in that interaction, like, I know what this person's idol is. I know what is holding him back from full surrender 
to, to God. And so he says, you know what you need to do? You need to sell everything you have, give it away to the poor, and then come and follow me. And he's like, I was afraid you were going to say something like that. And he walked away. It was like the sad story. Like, I, I think even, imagine being part of the, the group of the followers of Jesus, like his disciples, his apostles, who are with him, watching this whole thing play out. Like, it, it probably wasn't a great feeling. It was like the somber feeling, you know, like, oh, man, he's so close. And he decided, to just, he decided to walk away. What did that look like? What did that feel like? This was a down moment. And um, Jesus goes on, he talks a little bit about how wealth can be a God for us and get in the way of us being able to follow God. You know, it's impossible, basically, for anyone on their own to come to him because of all the other distractions. And, but then Peter, like, looks at this situation, he compares it to what the disciples had done. He goes, but Lord, what about, what about us? We've, we've left everything to follow you. We've left it all. And his motives are a little bit unclear. As we think about the question that he asks, like, what about us? Because we've left everything. We don't know if he's, he's talking out of this somber moment, like, oh, yeah, I, mean, we, I guess we did that. We took the hard choice. And what does that mean for us, Jesus? Maybe it was a genuine question. Maybe he was thinking about, I mean, is it better? Is that guy making the better choice, walking away? Because I'm, I'm sacrificing a lot. Or maybe Peter's kind of doing the Peter thing. Like, as we see over and over, he just blurts stuff out, and usually he's looking for kudos. Like, he's, he's looking for people to be like, yeah, great job, Peter. Um, usually Jesus does not give him that. But in this case, he answers it like it's a genuine question. So we don't know exactly what was in his heart at that time, but Jesus answers it as, it was a, as if it was a genuine question. In verse 29, here's how Jesus answers him when he says, what about us? who's left everything behind. Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much, a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. There's a lot. There's a lot here, right? There's a lot here. First of all, Mark is the only one who, who really tackles the persecutions aspect, right? And he offsets a little bit about what, where we could go with this passage that we could be dangerous. But as I think about this passage and I think about, Jesus, is it worth it? You know, and that's basically what Peter's asking, right? But Jesus, we've left everything. Is it worth it? Was it worth it? And he begins to answer this question about the sacrifices that, that people make in order to follow Jesus. When hopefully we're all making some sort of sacrifice to follow Christ in our lives, even now. And as Jesus talks about, is it worth it? I would expect him to point to the age to come, right? And he does. He says, and in the age to come, eternal life. And Paul lived with an eternal perspective. Jesus encouraged us to live with an eternal perspective, not just thinking about what we can recover in this life. But Jesus does make a promise here that is a here and now promise, right? He makes a promise here that is a here and now promise. He says, you will get a hundred times as much of what you give up when it comes to homes and family relationships and fields, so he's, he's giving this, this promise, this kind of broad promise of a hundredfold what we had and what we sacrificed 
in order to follow him. Now, this, this passage, it, without the, without the, along with persecutions caveat, is like a prosperity gospel's dream, right? Like a prosperity gospel preacher's dream. And I, I'm just going to be up front. I, there is something incredibly dangerous about a transactional relationship with God. And where when, when we approach him to follow him only to receive from him what we can receive from him, we're telling God we're about what you have in terms of gifts, not so much about you as our father. He wants our hearts for him. And so we have to be careful as we approach him, and even as we ask that question, is it worth it, that we have our hearts in the right place? Now, Jesus answers that question, right? Out of his grace, he answers that question for Peter, and he answers it for us. But at the same time, it's not about saying, hey, I'm going to follow God because if I follow God and if I do a good enough job of following God, he will bless me. And what bless means is more money, more cars, more stuff, more happiness, more health, more ease. That's just not how it works. And we know it's not how it works because he sneaks in there, that little thing, along with persecutions. Because by the way, this whole following thing has a cost and has a a real cost has a real cost. All right? So when we follow him, it's not about obtaining an easy and perfect life. The other reasons we know that it's, that's not what it's about is because he told us, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. It's not going to be all easy. Just because you follow God doesn't mean that you're not going to face struggles in life. It doesn't mean it's not going to be hard, you know, to, to, to start a family and at times you're not going to know if it's going to happen, right? Like we just heard that testimony. There's going to be times where we face the same types of difficulties we see out in the world, and even some others that are brought on because of our faith. But, but it is worth it, he says. It is worth it. Not only do we know it because of the promises and the teachings of Jesus, but we also can just look at the experiences of his closest followers. Okay, there were 12 here. One was a betrayer. Then there are 11, right? 10 out of the 11 were put to death for their faith in Jesus. 10 out of the 11. The 11th died in captivity. He died in exile. So what does this mean? You will receive a hundredfold. I think what Jesus is clearly promising here in this passage is he is promising to his followers community. Deep community. And a unity that may even go beyond a a blood connection that they may have had. Because a very real possibility in that time was for their families to disown them because of their faith change, right? Because their decision to follow Jesus as Messiah. That was a very real possibility. It was happening every day. It happens today. It happens today. Maybe not as, as often, depending on your, your uh, situation in this culture, but it, ha- it can happen. And when it happens, Jesus says, I have a community for you. I have a family for you. In fact, if you give up mother and father, I have a hundredfold a hundredfold. What does that look like? What does that mean? It's just an awesome promise. And so really our togetherness fulfills for God's people a promise from Jesus. He promises something to people who would follow him to give back a hundredfold, a hundred times what we give up in terms of our relationships, in terms of our community, in terms of our family of faith. Our togetherness fulfills a promise from Jesus. We are drawn together by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we are brought together with that one similarity, even despite maybe a million other differences. But that one similarity is enough to bind us together through the good news of the gospel.
That's amazing. It's amazing. But what does it look like to be brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers? I got to think mothers and fathers are probably those who come alongside and develop someone along in their faith, right? Discipleship. I mean, Jesus, he gave this whole plan where he had crowds following him, and he had like 12 following him, and he had like three of the 12 who he was spending specific time with, and he was developing them in their faith, and he shows how his ministry was intentional. We see how it was intentional as we read through the Gospels. We see how he came alongside people, and growth in our faith, it's no coincidence, happens in relationships. It happens in our life groups. It happens in one-on-one discipleship, mentorship type relationships. Those are the mothers and the fathers and the brothers and the sisters. We have all sorts of connection and community, and that's where growth happens. We see our lives begin to be formed. And again, we're drawn together by Jesus Christ and what he did for us. So what are some practical ways that we can practice more togetherness here as a church in order to be able to practice more one anothering as a church? Well, there's, there's a lot of things. We're constantly talking about life groups, right? We're talking about life groups over and over and over again. The reason we're doing that is because in order to be this kind of church dedicated to each other, we've got to follow their example. It says right there in that passage in Acts chapter 2 that they were spending time every day. They were, spending, they were meeting together in the temple courts, and then they were breaking bread in their homes and eating together. They were spending consistent time with one another in large groups and in smaller groups, and when we, we can't know everybody equally, right? We don't have that kind of time to invest in every relationship. But we can invest relationship, uh, in, in like eight relationships really deeply in our lives. And that's what it's all about. Life group is a, a place, a, a vehicle for growth and for care and for community. That's what it's all about. All right? Another way we can uh, practice this, and this is sort of like... Um, I mean, this is like a, a step below life groups in terms of commitment level, but it's a great way to get to know various people. So whether or not you're in a life group, you can do this. And this actually came out in a membership class that we did a year ago, not the one this past weekend. But the Lees, um, Jen and John Lee, they were like, in, in a previous church, we used to do this thing called Table for Six. They were involved in that and helped bring the church, knit the church together. And Jen was like, we got to do this here. We're like, okay, yeah, we got to do this here. We got to build this community. And so Table for Six, we talked about it. Ben told us about this. Essentially, if you want to start a Table for Six group, just invite like five other people to your house. Ish. It doesn't matter. We're not going to be like, oh, do you have, are you sure you have exactly six there? We don't care. Just have people over for dinner, right? And the idea behind this is to have at least three times where you meet together for dinner. However long it takes you to get to those three times, great. And then challenge everyone else in that group to go do the same thing. And grab six people or five other people and bring them to their home and, and meet together. And make sure they're not people you already know. Like, if you're in a life group, don't just invite the life group over and say, we got a table for six group. Like, that'd be cool, but that's just your life group getting together, all right? Find some people you don't know. Find some people maybe different age, different background, different whatever, and just invite them over. Get to know some people. And I think that's a great way for our church just to build more and more community. And I think while we're, this, like, this is a great side to like, know people, right? And to be close to people and to uh, have those deep relationships. And as we do that, that will be attractive to our world. Because we're, we'll, we're going to start talking about this next week. We're in a whole different time period than what we've been for the last 50 years when it comes to reaching lost people, reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. A whole different time period for how that needs to happen. And really, it needs to return to ways it looked long, long ago. Because it, things are just different. Things are just different today. All right, and so we need to be practicing this togetherness, practicing this togetherness. A really simple way, too, that we're going to be bringing out in the next few weeks is we're just going to do lunch after church. 
right across the street in the schoolhouse yard or if it rains inside this building. We're just going to get together and we're just going to hang out after church just to, be, just to be social, just to get to know people, just to practice togetherness. And so we're going to have a lot of opportunities to come together, to be a community, to be God's people unified by Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for what you did to knit us together, that something radical had to happen to bring the people together that you brought together, even in your earthly ministry, but then every day beyond there. There's followers of you, Jesus, in, on every continent on this planet. And we are brothers and sisters in you. Regardless of our differences, all of that is overshadowed by the one thing that is the same. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you bring that unifying power to us. We thank you that you designed us for that kind of community. Lord, I thank you that Oak Point Canton has that kind of community beginning to form here. We want to be your church. We want to follow your vision. Lord, drive us together. Help us to be people of togetherness, practicing one anothering in communities centered on you and your gospel. And even now, we look to you, the one thing who unifies us, Lord. Be glorified in our midst, we pray.